0: Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read this. This is our next message in this uh, Beatitude series. Pastor Brenda covered a few of them uh, over the last few weeks, and we're, we're kind of coming. We have two more, uh, three more, maybe four. Um of these, it depends where you cut off the Beatitudes, but um, we have a few more in this. And this is Jesus's kind of uh, Jesus's state of the union address. Like, here's what the, the kingdom of heaven looks like, here's what the culture of heaven looks like on the earth. And so let's read together Matthew 4 23. Again, we're reading this because we need this context here. Jesus isn't sitting. Uh, you know in a in a lecture hall at an academic uh, university environment teaching sort of those he's actually in the midst of crowds of people that he's been healing and setting free and restoring that he's been working powerfully they're actually seeing the fruit of the kingdom of god at work in their lives and in that context he sits down to say okay like here's the kingdom of god is working in power miracles are happening Amazing things, people are being set free and healed and all of this amazing stuff is happening and Jesus is saying, now I wanna, I wanna further explain to you what the culture of heaven looks like, what it looks like when heaven invades the earth. This is what Jesus is doing. Matthew 23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Guys, this is why we believe as a church that the, the supernatural activity of God is still at work on the earth today. Actually, when the kingdom of God is present, it explodes all of our natural presuppositions about what is or is not possible. That's why as a church, we're, we're deeply committed to praying for the sick, for, to asking God for healing. We're deeply committed to things like deliverance ministry and other things because they are the evidence of the outworking of the kingdom of God. That's why as a church, we take time in our services to as best we can, follow and obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit, not knowing always what he wants to do. We believe as a church that Jesus is not just giving us theory, and Jesus is not just uh, uh, talking about what's, what's possible in a specific time or age of the church. That This is for the church for all time. And we're living actually in this time where Jesus is still working in this way. That's our conviction as a church. So large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, and from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan. One day, chapter 5, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. That's what we're talking about today. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven and remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So these beatitudes that Jesus is offering, they, they actually turn the value system of the world on its head. Jesus is making radical countercultural statements about what the kingdom of God looks like. These are a description of the character and culture of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus His intention here is to intentionally disrupt the value system of the culture and world around us. We've been mentioning this, but we need to remember this week after week. I still have to remind myself, these are not virtues that he's telling you you need to aspire to. He's not saying God blesses those who try to be poor in spirit or poor economically. He's not saying God blesses those who, who act sad all the time. He's actually just simply describing what the kingdom of heaven values. Jesus Himself embodied all of these values, and I think it was Pastor Brenda who mentioned, like, these are not descriptions of like, hey, one guy is good at mourning, and and another woman is good, you know, at at uh, you know, being poor in spirit, and another person is a good peacemaker. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying all of these things characterize the kingdom of God. So it's not just like one for you and and another one for me and one for this person, but all of these things are are signposts of the presence of God. Or as as one pastor, Daryl Johnson in Vancouver, says that these are all evidences of being in alignment in sync with God in your life. Another way we could translate blessed is congratulations. Or like I love, you lucky bums. You haven't done anything. You haven't done anything to earn or deserve this. These aren't virtues that you're, you're clawing away at in your life. This is, uh, this is the effect of the presence of God on your life. So these are an announcement rather than a demand for conduct. Jesus is not demanding conduct here. He's just simply making announcement of the reality of what these things are. So God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. In your translation, it might say righteousness, which I would prefer. I'm reading from the New Living, and it uses the word justice. But For they will be satisfied. So here's what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying blessed are those, blessed are those who feel righteous, who feel like they measure up. He's not saying, Blessed are those who are declared righteous, even. He's not saying that. He's not, he's not projecting further into Paul's teaching of the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. He's not saying that. He's not saying, Blessed are those who are declared righteous. Or blessed are those who feel righteous in this moment. He's not even saying blessed are those who are on their way to being righteous. What Jesus is saying is God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This, in its essence, is about what you crave. In its essence, this is about what you're chasing after to satisfy your soul. In its essence, Jesus is drawing a contrast here between the cravings and attachments and appetites of the culture around us and what it looks like to crave the kingdom of God in our life. So the question we have to ask ourselves right at the outset is, what am I craving? Some of us crave financial security and wealth. Some of us crave the approval of others around us. Some of us crave control, like like our life has to be ordered and controlled, every part of it. We have to have it arranged exactly the way we need it to be. Some of us crave sexual fulfillment. Some of us crave uh, pleasure. And the pursuit of pleasure in our life. There's so many things that our culture says uh, we need to crave. Some of us just crave comfort. Some of us in this culture are craving the way things used to be. I've heard so many people say to me, the Canada that is coming for my kids is not going to be the Canada that I grew up with, and all I want for them is what the Canada that I grew up with. Which I get and understand, but is that a, a craving for the kingdom of God or a craving for what's comfortable? The question I think we need to ask is, what are you chasing after to satisfy you? What is it that you spend your time and energy, emotionally, mentally, physically? What is it you spend your time and energy investing into these days in order to bring you peace, in order to satisfy what seems to be missing from your soul? Scripture tells us that we were made to crave God. Augustine penned that famous quote, in the center of every man is a God-shaped hole. Like we were made to crave God. But because of the influence of sin in the kingdom of darkness, the devil and our culture, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, because these things are working against that, it's, it's constantly pushing substitute cravings into our life, into our, into our periphery. Our culture is constantly pushing substitute cravings into our view. And we have to make a choice every day to decide what are we actually hungry for? A hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus is saying, it rewires our compulsive nature. I have trouble with compulsion, especially around food. Like literally... I've told you this before. I've admitted to you. Like, I'll drive by a billboard, and there's like a juicy burger on it, and I'm pulling right into McDonald's the very next step. Like, I struggle with compulsiveness. And what Jesus is aiming at here is actually a confrontation and a rewiring of our, our, our human nature to be compulsive and to dart around to the right and left, to be to be, uh Tempted by what we see in our eyes or what we are experiencing with our bodies. A hunger and thirst for righteousness rewires our obsessions. Like for for some of us, there's just things that we can't let go of. There's things other than God that drive our life. And Jesus is leaning into some of these realities. And a hunger and thirst for righteousness rewires our egocentrality that the purpose of my life is to satisfy my desires. And Jesus is he's offering a countercultural picture of what the kingdom of God is actually like. So in another word you could say God blesses those whose appetite seeks him first. For they are the ones who will be truly satisfied. Matthew 6.33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Where is your appetite or appetites? Where are they leading you to? Are they leading you deeper into the things of the kingdom or are they actually leading you down garden paths away from it? This word righteousness, we're just going to define this because we can't It's impossible to overstate the significance of this word in Scripture. What does it mean? All right, so there's uh, several aspects to this word. In the Greek, it refers to a moral righteousness and legal justice. It has both sides of that coin. But as we look at in Matthew here, Matthew here is writing before Paul. Paul talks a lot about righteousness and the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. That's not what Matthew is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about specifically. So Matthew's not talking about a divine gift we're given, a vindication like you are now righteous before me because of your faith in Jesus. Matthew is talking about the righteousness of conduct. That is to say... The active rather than the passive. Matthew is talking about and Jesus is talking about the way that we live here. The fruit of our choices here. Jesus is saying the things that drive your appetite will drive your choices. The question is, where are those in alignment to? Are they actually a hunger and thirst for the kingdom of God? Or a hunger and thirst for everything else in your life that competes with that? There's no concept in the whole of Scripture that's more important than this one. Righteousness is not just about choices. So it is how we act. But in its centrality, it's about relationships. This is what an Old Testament theologian says, there is no concept on the, of the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard not only for man's relationship to God, but also for his relationship to his fellows, reaching right down to the most petty wranglings. Indeed, it is even the standard of man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environment. What this theologian Gerhard von Rad is saying is that it's about living in faithfulness in terms of the covenant relationship we have with God. So this is righteousness is a relational term. And if we understand it in in the whole of Scripture, it's living faithfulness within the bounds of that relationship. So there are bounds in my relationship, in my marriage to Rochelle, there are bounds in that relationship that I need to live inside of in order to be faithful to her. And what God is saying is, what I'm desiring for you is to hunger and thirst, to live inside the bounds of the relationship that I've structured for you, that I've invited you into, that's actually for your good. I've designed things in your world and in your life for your good, and what I'm inviting you to is to live in relationship with me, to be faithful to me. Do not violate the terms of that relationship. So righteousness means in right relationship. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for right relationships. Right relationships to God, but also right relationships to each other. And in fact, even beyond that, we'll talk about that. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, they're not just a a list of moral codes and ethics that God arbitrarily set down. They're actually deeply relational. The Ten Commandments describe what right relationship, faithfulness in relationship to God looks like. And we often would say, hey, what's the first commandment? And we would go, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Like, you must not worship other idols. But that's not the first thing that God says to Moses. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I have designed you for relationship with me. The Ten Commandments are about living in right relationship, in faithful relationship to God. So what are they? God says, no one else or nothing else should take my place in your life. We're in this relationship, and I need to be your number one priority. I need to be your number one focus. And then he says, uh, you need to live by a new rhythm of life, a rhythm of rest and Sabbath to demonstrate that you actually trust me. You know what Sabbath is about? Virtually none of us practice it. It's about trust. Do you trust God? That he can accomplish more in your life by resting in him than you working 80 hours a week. Our compulsive workaholic nature is actually a, a revealing of our deep lack of trust in God. And God is saying, if you if you want to live in right relationship with me, you you have to Frame a new ethic for rest and time that is actually uh, an indication of how deeply you trust me with your life. But God, I've got so many things to do and if I don't take care of all of this, if I don't work from sunup to sundown, my business is gonna fall apart and everything is gonna go haywire and God is saying, then you don't actually trust me because you're not willing to schedule into your life time away to be fueled and fed by me. This is relational. You must honor your father and mother. You must not take a life. You must not practice unfaithfulness. You must not take from others. God is probing at our human nature, our egocentric nature here. You must not lie about others. You must not live to have what others have. These are all deeply relational realities So righteousness in Scripture means being faithful to relationship. Daryl Johnson says it this way, it's all about relational integrity and wholeness. A relational integrity and wholeness that encompasses the totality of life. Blessed are those who crave relational wholeness. I wanna be in right relationship with God. I wanna live within the bounds of what he establishes as good and healthy for my relationship with him. But I also want to be whole in my relationships with other people. In his book on the Beatitudes, Daryl Johnson suggests four aspects of relational wholeness. You can write these down if you want. They're good to just process. And these are found in the first two chapters of the Bible. Number one, first aspect of relational wholeness, our relationship, the relationship of mankind to the earth. The word in Hebrew for human is adam. The word for earth is Adama. We were made to rule and reign on the earth, to tend to it, to rule over it, to steward it, As part of our responsibility in God's kingdom, we were made from the earth for the earth. Guess what? Uh, Eternity in heaven is not somewhere else. It's here in our natural state. You were made as a human. I was made as a human. We were made from the earth for the earth. We weren't made for something else. And God is saying that our, our future, our fate, our, our eternity is intertwined with the earth. So that's one area of relational wholeness. Number two, we were made for relationship with other human beings. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is "isha." We were created for community and relationships. We were not made to be individualistic. I'm an island type people and our culture has such a high value on my, 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 my. In a, in a deeply dysfunctional and sinful way, we've elevated what is ours above what is Ours together in community with someone else. We live to satisfy ourselves. And God says you were made for relational wholeness with others. The third area, relational wholeness with our inner self. This is interesting. Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and Eve were naked physically, but walked without shame. That God created you and I to have wholeness of being, not to be crippled by shame or fear or anxiousness or regret. God cares very deeply about uh, the, the state of your heart and your soul. Daryl Johnson says it this way, we're psychological creatures made to have a healthy view of ourself as totally loved by God living without shame or fear or guilt. The last one, God's uh, wholeness in our relationship with God, this is the most important, and this holds all of them together. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relatedness to me and to others, to yourself even. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Have you noticed that? You can't love someone else to a greater degree than you love yourself. If you're not pursuing wholeness in your life before God, if you're not actually willing to walk through the transformation of the power and presence of God in your inner being for yourself, you will not be able to carry that to anyone else. A broken and divided and, and dysfunctional person can't bring healing and wholeness to the person beside them before they receive it for themselves. And that's why, as a church, we, we have such a deep passion for things like inner healing and the restorative work of God in the inner parts of ourselves. These are the four aspects of relational wholeness. So how do we do this? We need to balance two things. Number one, a hunger and thirst for faithfulness to God in our life. That's the pursuit of holiness and purity. Purity of right-relatedness in our personal walk with God. But we can't, we can't neglect the other half of righteousness, which is a thirst for God's justice on the earth, for right-relatedness to other people, for injustices to be made right for the the wicked and broken pervasive effects of sin in the kingdom of darkness to be overturned and restored. Jesus walked in both of these categories, and so often the, the segment of the body of Christ that is passionate about holiness and pursuing the presence of God often does so at the neglect of the social issues of our day. They just ignore it like somehow that's just going to get magically taken care of. So they're able and willing to walk into dark places of their own soul, but not the dark places of their city. And on the other hand, the, the segment of the church that's bent towards social justice and working toward equality and, and, and equity in our community is often doing that while diminishing mm-hmm the effects of sin and the need to live holy before God. In fact, segments of this part of the body of Christ are changing definitions about what sin actually is and and rewriting what God actually says it means to walk in right relationship with him. And in their desire to meet the broken and hurting in their place of need, oftentimes the temptation is to say God doesn't want you to change anything about your life. And that's not righteousness either. What the church needs is both of these together, working together. That's what happened in the first century church. They had this radical countercultural movement that was calling people to holiness before God, but was actually stepping into the darkest places of their society, to the widow and the orphan and the broken and the hurting. Where do you think, in our modern culture, universities come from? It was a product of the early church. Hospitals and healthcare, that was a product of the first century church, bringing healing and restoration to the communities that they were living in, practical helps to overturn the injustices of the world around them. The early church was passionate about infanticide. They would walk the garbage dumps to rescue children that were literally thrown away. That's where orphanages come from. It's the church's response not just to be holy and pious before God in this room here together, which is important, but to actually take this and go to the darkest places of the earth and bring the restorative nature of the kingdom of God to bear. And that's what Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. All right, we're almost done. Hunger. we got to get these words straight. The word that Jesus is using is actually a very forceful word. That word literally means to be starving or famished. He's not just talking about the kind of hunger that's like, hey, it's uh, between breakfast and lunch here and I could really use a croissant. Right? I deal with that kind of hunger every day of my life. This is not like Chips at 10 p.m. hunger. This is, I am starving, and if I don't find food, I'm gonna die. That's what Jesus is talking about. Your hunger and thirst for the kingdom of God, your appetite for the things of God needs to, to come with this force of starvation. Like, if I don't see the kingdom of God at work in my life, I'm gonna die. Not, I'll just take a little bit of this. Like, I'm an expert grazer. Just ask Rochelle. I'm such a good grazer. Like, I'll go to the fridge, right? You go to the fridge, I don't even know what I want half the time. I'm just like, yeah, I'll take one of those. And I don't really love those, but they're here, so I'll finish those off. Right? What Jesus is, is actually confronting is our propensity to graze at the table of our culture. To take just a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I heard one uh, theologian this week said it's not even like, you know, the the problem, it is a problem, but it's not even necessarily the, the rampant hardcore pornography on the internet that's the problem. It's all of the shows that we consume that numb us. That, that actually portray uh, human sexuality as a commodity to be traded and, and actually makes permissible all kinds of things that are outside the sexual ethic of Scripture. It's, it's actually those small little morsels at the table that we eat and eat and eat that lead to this epidemic of pornography and hardcore porn on the internet that so many people are in bondage to. You don't start there. You start with all of the things that you justify in your life. Oh, that's fine. That won't won't impact me. It's interesting when we watch shows with our kids now. Eli's 11, Simon's 9. Like, even the smallest stuff. I get in trouble for this because I'm a little bit more relaxed than Rochelle is with it. But even the smallest little things are like, whoa, whoa, uh," like... Oh, I didn't notice that word before, or, or, or like I was telling you about Back to the Future before, a few weeks ago, watching that with Eli. I didn't know Marty's mom was so provocative in, the, in that, right? When he goes back in time, that's like, I'm watching this with my little boys, and I'm like, fast forward, fast forward. I don't remember that. But Marty's mom, whoa, yikes, like... Crazy talk. It's that stuff, and Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just, like, pick at the kingdom of God. Like, I'll take a little here, and mm, no, I'm good. I'll just take a little here. The, the, The kingdom of God is meant to be starved for, and thirst is to be parched. William Barclay says this, theologian, the hunger which this beatitude describes is no genteel hunger which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack, the thirst of which it speaks is no thirst which could be slated with a cup of coffee or an ice drink. It's the hunger of the man who is starving for food and the thirst of the man who will die unless he drinks. Jesus is not blessing those who have lived their whole lives with a mild dissatisfaction. But is describing a desperate state of being. What are you hungry for? What are you craving today? And what's interesting, I heard a pastor, John Tyson, say this in a, in a message on this verse. He said, What's interesting in the story of the prodigal son is when the son is hungry and there's a famine, he's hungry, he goes to work for the farmer feeding pigs but when he's starving he goes back to the father and so many of us live our Christian life with just this mild dissatisfaction with the world and a desire just to sprinkle a little bit of God into it we're kind of like that son who we have just enough hunger to go work in the in the feed troughs with the pigs but we're not starving enough to go back to the father And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are that hungry and thirsty, who are willing to lay down the appetites of our culture, are willing to stand up in this beautiful resistance, like I will not be satisfied or defined by the pleasures put in front of me from my culture, the things that they say are necessary to satisfy my life, the things that the social media influencers say I need in my life, The workaholism that is celebrated in our culture. So many things. The question is, what are you hungry for? In many ways, we've become experts at mixing Jesus into all of our other little cravings. Just enough that our conscience is satiated. Bruce Marshall says this. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Our culture that is swiping right on Tinder, they're looking to satisfy something that only God can meet them in. Our culture is directing your attention and my attention to a hundred different places. And God is saying, blessed are those who are starving, for the kingdom of God in spite of that. I think that the prophetic voice of our church has been compromised in our community, in our culture because we don't stand in stark contrast to it. We kind of look like it in so many ways. Why don't we stand together I want to leave you with this thought. I just felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me with this. That you and I, the church together, we're not able to call hungry and thirsty people to God because we're not hungry and thirsty for it those people that are just craving everything they can get their hands on in our world and in our culture. We're not able to call them to God when we ourselves are not hungry for the presence of God, when we're not willing to lay down and drop everything in our life for the pursuit of his presence and his kingdom, to see his justice roll like a river, through our families, and through our communities, bringing restoration to your own soul, but actually bringing restoration to the fabric of our cities. This is what God is calling us to, and Jesus is saying those people will be satisfied. He's giving us uh, an eschatological future there, meaning your satisfaction may not come in this lifetime, but you will be fulfilled and then fulfilled again and overflowing with fulfillment if you actually redirect your cravings and your appetites in this life, the life you now have to pursuing the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, I, again, I I fully admit and recognize that I don't live this like You've invited me to so many times in my life. I've fallen so far short of this. And I'm asking for each of us as we step into Thanksgiving dinners and sit at the table with each other, that we would be reminded that your calling to us is to direct our cravings and our appetites, our pursuits toward you and your kingdom that we would be starving for the things of God, starving to be changed and transformed, starving for his presence, starving to see him work in power in our families and in our communities, starving for the outflowing of the kingdom of God in our city and in our church, starving to see God uh, as champion and king of our lives and our families and our communities. and so. All that we can ask today, Jesus, is that you would direct us as we walk this out. Father, I pray that you would, again, just in the simplest way, bring us a conviction today of how we steward our time. God, we set aside time in our lives for the things that we desire and are craving, and I pray that you would convict us to established, guarded, safe time with you to read your word, to time for prayer, and to be in your presence. Teach us how to draw from the well of life. And Father, where there are areas in our life that we have been eating from the table of our culture, we just ask for your specific conviction, Holy Spirit, we welcome your conviction. Redirect us in our appetites towards you in Jesus' name. Amen.